Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. And I'm Sarah Griffiths. And on this episode, we're talking about the Golden Mummies of Egypt exhibition, which following a hugely successful tour in the US and China, is about to go on show at the Manchester Museum later this month. And we'll be speaking exclusively to a curator at the museum, Dr. Campbell Price, uh, to discuss what visitors can look forward to when they're there. Uh, of course, more on that coming up. Uh, first, though, I have to welcome you, Sarah, as it's your first time on the podcast. Um, and you're the deputy editor of Ancient Egypt magazine, uh, which is a new addition to the past platforms table. Um, would you like to give me a very brief introduction to the magazine and its history? Yeah, sure. And uh, it's great to be here doing my first podcast. <laughs> um, so Ancient Egypt magazine was founded in May 2000 by Miriam Bibby, who was a graduate of the fabulous University of Manchester Certificate in Egyptology course, which many of us have done. Um, Rather than being another academic journal, the idea was to produce a popular magazine aimed at a wide readership to explore the history and the people and the culture of the Nile Valley. So we cover all aspects of ancient Egyptian history, including the latest research and excavation discoveries. And we've got subscribers all over the world. Our current editor, uh, Peter Phillips, became involved in 2004 when the late Bob Partridge took over as editor and I joined a few years later. And in February 2017, we celebrated our 100th issue, which in the magazine world is quite an achievement. Uh, I can't believe since then we've produced another 35 issues. But of course, um, last autumn, we became part of Current Publishing alongside other fantastic titles like Current Archaeology and Minerva. So in total, um, Ancient Egypt has been going now for almost 23 years. So hopefully we'll have another big anniversary in a couple of years' time. And a new issue of Ancient Egypt is due to hit the shelves on the 9th of February. Um, other than the Golden Mummies exhibition, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment, um, what can readers look forward to when they pick up a copy? Oh, well, it's action-packed as ever, um, starting with the Amarna period, always popular with our readers. And in the next issue, we reveal some new interpretations of Akhenaten and Nefertiti's imagery by John and Colleen Darnell, who've got some interesting perspectives on the underlying symbolism of those family scenes and also the vital role played by the princesses in the royal rituals. And we also go off the beaten track, first with Julian Heath, who's looking for the earliest evidence of settlements in the prehistoric Western desert. And then we call Harris because he's searching the El Cab Wadi for this little visited temple, which is dedicated to two goddesses, Nekbet and Hathor. Uh, then we have Francis Frith. Um, and as you probably know, he was the pioneering photographer who, amongst other things, documented some of the great monuments of ancient Egypt in incredibly difficult conditions. So Julius Skinner is exploring his life and legacy and showcasing in the magazine some of his amazing images. And we have our regular columnist too, Hilary Wilson, and she's going to show how the humble Egyptian stool is still inspiring modern furniture trends today. Um, and we also have an exclusive for you because Tanish Sidpura is turning a well-established theory on its head. He's publishing his findings for the first time. Uh, this is his PhD research into the so-called Golden Flies Awards. And spoiler alert, it's not an award for valour. So what is it? Well, you'll have to wait until issue 135 comes out and then you can read it. Very good. 
Um, and of course, the Golden Mummies exhibition is on the cover, so we can't really uh, get around that. Um, and it's also the subject of this week's interview, which you recorded at the tail end of last week, I think it was. And uh, yes, well, Sarah, would you like to introduce the interview and our guest? The Golden Mummies of Egypt is an exhibition of Greco-Roman highlights from the Manchester Museum collection. The exhibition has toured the US and China and it's coming home in time for the opening of the newly refurbished museum on the 18th of February. It's a free exhibition and it explores the expectations of life and death in Greco-Roman Egypt through 100 objects and eight golden mummies. And it's featured in an article in the March-April edition of Ancient Egypt magazine, that's issue 135, written by Dr Campbell Price, who's my guest here today. Campbell is curator of Egypt and Sudan at the Manchester Museum, which is part of the University of Manchester. He's also Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Liverpool and Chair of the Trustees of the Egypt Exploration Society. He's the author of several books, including The Pocket Museum, Ancient Egypt, which was published by Thames and Hudson in 2018. He's a staff contributor to Ancient Egypt magazine, each month selecting a particular object highlight from collections around the world. And he writes a popular blog, Egypt at the Manchester Museum, which you can see on egyptmanchester.wordpress.com. So his latest book, Golden Mummies of Egypt, Interpreting Identities from the Greco-Roman Period, was written to accompany the exhibition. Campbell, welcome to the past cast. You must be very excited to see the exhibition finally arrive in Manchester, but also really busy. Oh, yes, Sarah. It's really nice to be with you because obviously we've known each other for a while. Um, great to do a podcast with you. And this is really a little break in the preparations for the exhibition opening in two weeks' time. Is there a lot still to do? Um, there's a lot still to do in the rest of the museum, but the Golden Mummies exhibition, which is in our new special exhibition hall, is almost completely installed. Uh, we're just tinkering with some of the AV. The Greco-Roman period. It's one of my favourite periods of Egyptian history, as you know. I know. <laughs> um, perhaps one of the less popular eras, at least as far as the general public are concerned. So could you give us some background to the period and, and why you chose this as the focus of the exhibition? Sure. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's rather less well known than the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, the New Kingdom... So the Greco-Roman period is the period when Egypt is ruled by the Ptolemies, so the last three centuries BC, into the uh, period when it's ruled by the Roman Empire, uh, so the first few centuries AD. And so the reason we decided to do an exhibition on this really is based on the strength of the collection. So we have um, in total 18,000 objects from ancient Egypt and Sudan, one of the best uh, and biggest in the UK, one of the most significant in Europe. But there's a real focus of material from that Greco-Roman period. And the exhibition focuses especially on the site of Hawara uh, in the Fayum, southwest of Cairo. And the excavations led by Flinders Petrie uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, provided a wealth of material. And because Manchester was a major sponsor, it received through Fines Division a significant collection of objects from there. 
people see the period as being foreign and not pharaonic at all because we have the Macedon Greeks during the Ptolemaic period and then, of course, uh, rule from Rome. But do you think that's fair? I, I think, well, Egyptology in general has has a problem with how it views Egyptian history. You know, some things are Egyptology and some things are not. Um but I think a, a good Egyptologist should look at all of Egyptian culture and every period up to the modern day. But I think that was a problem Petrie felt with the material he writes in his journals and in his books, that he actually feels quite uncomfortable with this mixing, this cultural mixing. Um, Petrie had some, what today would be considered pretty sinister ideas about eugenics and about race, and he didn't like the ideas of races mixing. So the idea of the pure Egyptian race mixing with the Greeks and the Romans was somewhat distasteful uh, to him. And I think his prejudices have continued in scholarship, but with the museum going public, when that material was first put on display, mummies covered in gold, very brightly painted uh, objects, um, the Fayum portraits, of course, these uh, fantastic um, painted panels, this was all very popular with the intelligent people of the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So despite his disfavour, I think that multiculturalism actually finds a lot of enthusiasm uh, amongst viewers in modern times. Well, you mentioned the Fayum portraits. I want to come on to those a bit later. Mm. But first of all, we need to look about death. We need to talk yeah. about death because... <laughs> The ancient Egyptians appear to have spent a great deal of time and resources on preparing for the afterlife, preserving their bodies through um, mummification. Um, you talk about them being obsessed with it. Um, mm. How did all of this prepare them for the afterlife? Um, well, briefly, as I say in the book and, and as is, is picked up in the exhibition, I don't think mummification is about preservation necessarily. It's about transformation and the people who are being transformed into the mummies that you will encounter, the mummified people you will encounter in the exhibition, they are really the rich people. They can only be the top small percentage of society. But that percentage does seem to have been fairly obsessed with the idea of um, attaining some higher level after death which is said explicitly in texts and in iconography to be the status of divinity. So it's not simply that you're following in the path of a divinity, you are really becoming a divinity through the process of mummification. So it's not simply about preserving people as they were, um, and I think we're kind of blindsided slightly by the well-preserved uh, remains of the royal mummies in the New Kingdom. These are said to be the kind of the absolute peak of the embalmer's art and everything else is somehow an experiment or a failure, which is nonsense. What you being actually... a little bit heretical here, though, Campbell, because oh, um, well, as maybe. everyone knows, the dead needed a nicely preserved body so that their spirit could come and live in that body in the afterlife. But you're saying, actually, it's more to do with transformation. It's not about preserving that body. It's, it comes down a little bit to semantics. I think preserving the flesh is not so important as maybe some would think it is because it's your outer form. It's the wrapped form, which is the objective. 
And you get that very clearly in the Greco-Roman period, where often the outer wrappings are either beautifully bandaged, we have some examples in the exhibition, or covered in these very bright um, shrouds, often gilded. And I think what our exhibition does is, because we don't have any CT scans or x-rays or facial reconstructions, that has been edited out. Um, and we didn't have any facial reconstructions anyway. It just puts a focus on what the ancient Egyptians wanted the outer layer to be, um, if it was seen by anyone, which there is some evidence that, at least in the Roman period, uh, mummies were, were meant to be viewed by at least family members for some time uh, after uh, they were created. I think the outer layering is about imparting and confirming the divinity of the individual. It doesn't matter that inside, you know, you're maybe rotting not away. as beautifully preserved as <laughs> Seti the first. That the exhibition is called Golden Mummies. And of course, mm. when anyone thinks about Egypt, they just think of lashings of gold and the, the gold and Carmoon mask and everything. Why is gold so significant? Um, presumably not just about showing wealth. And, mm -hmm. and is it more significant in the Greco-Roman period when we have more golden mummies? Yes, absolutely. I, th I think... In a sense, of course, it is about showing off wealth at the funeral or maybe slightly subsequently. But we know from plenty of ancient Egyptian texts and texts into the Greco-Roman period contemporary with the creation of these golden mummies, that gold is meant to be the material of which the god's flesh is made. So the gods are said to have bones made of iron or silver, hair made of lapis lazuli, that blue semi-precious stone, and yeah, skin made of gold. So if you can afford it, of course, if you're in that small proportion of uh, the population that can afford it, you have the plaster mask, which is covered in gold uh, leaf. And that really affects the divinity of that person, man, woman, child. We even have examples found in, in Egypt up to fairly recent times where the body itself, the actual body itself, has had gold applied onto the, the, the skin. So there's this idea that by being covered in gold, you will be rejuvenated and you will be turned into a god. Of course, in the modern age, we're all obsessed with gold. So because you've got golden mummies, hopefully will be a lot of people wanting to come and see them. And we, we've got one of them on the front cover of issue 135 of the magazine as well. So, Indeed, uh, yeah. Poster boy. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular one? Um, that, that is a lovely example. <laughs> well chosen. And again, there's this sense of multiculturalism because it's mixed iconography. So that example mixes this Greek, Roman and Egyptian idea of the afterlife altogether. So he is like a, a multicultural poster boy. In that instance, there are archive photos from Petrie's excavations at Hawara, where the mask comes from, showing that the face was damaged. And so we know that the mask was restored in the museum. And so this is something I'm always keen to point out to visitors. You know, museums don't just transmit facts. They create, they actively create facts. And in that case, you know, where a face has been damaged, Someone has made a judgment about what that face should have looked like. So it's been restored according to what a modern um, person thought. And I think it's important, again, to emphasise that none of the, the dead looked like these masks. These masks, although they are would have been very expensive, they were essentially mass-produced based on moulds. And 
they're meant to look like gods and goddesses. They're not meant to look like living, breathing people as they once were. I can almost imagine somebody going along to the local funerary shop and yeah. selecting what mask they want from the shelves or, you know, probably not quite like that. But those yeah. those are the more pharaonic ones, aren't they? But what about these wonderful Fayum portraits? I mean, we call them portraits. Are they really accurate likenesses? Is this a big change we see in the Roman period? Well, there's a tradition, isn't there, in ancient Rome for that kind of painting. You know, you see it at you know Pompeii and Herculaneum, where there are paintings of people in that fashion. Whether the people actually looked anything like those paintings, however, is a moot point, because, you know, when facial reconstructions have been done, the artist has been influenced by the portrait, I think. And I think facial reconstruction is a very subjective art than, than people perhaps imagine. There is no way of telling, but I suspect, personally, the majority of the portraits, if not all of them, are at best uh, stylized, idealized. And they were done posthumously. So they would be done not as Petrie thought from a sitter someone goes and sits for their portrait and then it hangs around in the house literally it hangs on the wall and then when you snuff it it gets cut down and then put into your um, mummy wrapping because there are lots of portraits of children that it's meant to be done at the prime of life I suspect the Bayoum portraits as we call them that these panel paintings follow far more closely the masks which were used contemporaneously at the same time you could choose either to have a mask painted or gilded or a panel painting on wood and they are all meant to show this beautiful deified idealized kind of generic face and the thing about the fine portraits is you know, there's this story, good circumstantial evidence suggests that Oscar Wilde saw the Fayoum portraits on display in the 1880s. And, you know, it's not hard to imagine that the picture of Dorian Gray is directly inspired by that encounter. But we see them, and people, museum visitors see them, and you cannot help but think, oh, she looks like the woman in the road, or he looks like that guy I saw on the bus. You know, they have an immediacy, that glint of light in the eye is as attractive as the glint of gold on the masks. Almost modern faces, really, that are looking at you when you look at these masks, and you've got a really nice collection of them in the Manchester Museum. Yeah, we're l- lucky in a way that through Fines Division, and because Manchester was paying a lot of money into the kitty, basically, for, for the excavations at Hawara, that Petrie, through um, that partage system, was allowed to take up to 50% of material that was deemed surplus to requirement. He was allowed to export that. And the lion's share of good examples came to Manchester. So we're able to tell the story of that aspect of Greco-Roman funerary culture quite, quite well, because we have, I think, a dozen portraits in the exhibition. Well, talking about the exhibition, it's opening in a couple of weeks. I can't wait Mm -hmm. to see it. Uh-huh. Could you maybe give listeners a, a little sneak preview of the exhibition, what we can see, how it's set up, what the different sections are? Yeah, well, as I said, it's our first exhibition in our brand new exhibition hall. Uh, so the old exhibition hall, if anyone had visited Manchester Museum before maybe four years ago, I think we had maybe 150 square metres. We now have almost 500 square metres. So we've got more um, space to play with. 
Um, and so the exhibition has been on tour internationally, as I said, in the US, in Buffalo and North Carolina. And then it uh, came to three venues in China. And now it's coming back to Manchester. And so in this form, uh, you will move through different themes. Um, the introductory theme is about multiculturalism. And some of my favourite objects are these uh, Greco-Roman terracottas. You'll know the kind of thing I mean, the kind of bess cheeky, chappy, ancient Egyptian deity who's often associated with protection and healing and especially keeping women in childbirth and young children safe. He is shown in the armour of a Macedonian soldier. So it's it's kind of this idea of how would you depict a god to protect you in a kind of threatening way? Well, maybe, you know, Macedonian armour was quite threatening. Uh, if you lived in the Ptolemaic period, I don't know. But these are objects from houses, and so it sets the scene that although the exhibition mainly concerns the elite, people who could afford a gilded mask and mummification, this idea of hybrid gods and multicultural gods, I think, pervaded society in the last centuries, BC into the first centuries AD. And from there, we move through uh, different themes looking at expectations for the afterlife, um, how gods were represented on uh, masks and on cartonage covers and on the shrouds of mummies and what the meaning of gold was. As you said, this is something that maybe people take for granted. You know, King Tut's mask is gold because he was really rich. Well, in a way, but it's gold because it was believed to be uh, the flesh of the gods. Um, something about the exhibition I really enjoyed in the planning stages was Working with a design company, Nomad Exhibitions, who are based in Edinburgh, they had lots of international touring experience, but they had a really strong vision for drama. Uh, it's a really dramatic show. It's quite dark for conservation reasons. And so the fine portraits, um, you know, small objects, the, the gold-covered masks are really picked out with very dramatic light. And so it was really a pleasure to see this kind of all come together. And then, of course, we present the the, the fire and portraits, along with a couple of busts, actually, from um, Palmyra in Syria, part of our archaeology collection, which people might be familiar with because they, they made the news a few years ago because so-called Islamic State were destroying a lot of them in Palmyra, and a few of them were saved. The ones in Manchester Museum have been uh, there for over 100 years. But that was the kind of equivalent in, say, the second century AD to the fine portraits. It was just a different part of the, the Roman Empire. And then we move into a final section about why are we interested in all of these objects? And I just think there's something about Ptolemaic and Roman temple art, the hybridity, the, the mixture with, with some Greek and Roman influence, the fullness of the figures, the plumpness of the figures often, uh, and the very liberal use of gold which makes them very attractive to the museum going public, if not to Flinders Petrie when he found them. I'm going to put you on the spot now. What would you say is your favourite object from the exhibition? Oh, um, my favourite object is maybe not what you would expect. It's a little object from daily life, quotation marks, and it's a little maybe, oh gosh, five or six centimetre wide convex glass a disc, which was found by Petrie's team, Egyptian team, at Hawara. It's clear glass. 
And it makes you think, gosh, if they had clear glass. I mean, Petrie thought it was used to um, focus light like a bullseye. So you could focus you know, Egyptian sunlight, which is pretty strong, and you could potentially you know, start a fire that way. But you can also use it to magnify text. And I just think it's fascinating. You know, if they had that very fine understanding of how glass refracts light, you wonder what else could they do? <laughs> I don't want to build into conspiracy theories, but it's it's quite an unassuming object in an exhibition about golden mummies, but um, it's contemporary with the, the people who are in the exhibition. So I think it's fascinating. Got me wondering there whether it's acting like a magnifying glass and in the heat of the Egyptian sun, they're trying to magnify the text on a papyrus and then off it goes in flames. Yeah, Yeah, suddenly maybe that's how the Library of Alexandria got burnt down. Now, of course, we're going to see you at our upcoming Current Archaeology Live, which is being held in London, 25th of February. And you're going to be there in the flesh and you're presenting the very first lecture. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm delighted to be kicking off the day. Uh, it looks like a really good uh, lineup. I'll be speaking specifically, um, I think my title is Between Rapture and Revulsion, uh, the Golden Mummies of Egypt. So, this really concerns the last chapter in the book, which just considers why I mean, it really is the $64,000 question why do people get so interested in ancient Egyptian mummies? I'm not sure. Well, I, I am sure. And I'll tell you in the exhibit, I'll tell you in the um, the lecture, it is this um, sweet spot, what someone described to me as the Goldilocks zone. If you're talking about space, you know, what distance from the sun can uh, be close enough to support life, but be far enough to not frazzle life. Uh, So ancient Egypt is in the Goldilocks zone. It's the sweet spot of something which is suitably familiar. It's familiar enough to us, but it's still suitably exotic and far away. I use other examples, not just from the exhibition, uh, that I think have informed people's fascination, curiosity, horror, repulsion. And I think it's funny, people talk about museums influencing popular culture. I think popular culture also influences museums. It's a cycle, it's a circle. Yeah. So the exhibition opens on the 18th, and when does it run to? It will run until the very end of 2023, 31st of December. Um, so it will run all year. Uh, so you'll be very welcome to see it. As I say, tickets are uh, free. Booking is uh, generally advised, but it will be possible to get tickets on the day. If you want to book tickets, then just go to the museum.manchester.ac.uk website. It's all on there with further details. Um, Campbell's book is available to buy at the museum, I presume, as well. It is, yes. Any online or high street bookshop. How do we get to your blog? It is egyptmanchester.wordpress.com or you can follow me on social media at egyptmcr. And uh, the current Archaeology Live is going to be held at UCL Institute of Education in London. That's on Saturday, the 25th of February. And apart from Campbell, we've got topics including excavating the origins of Islam in Morocco, the Iron Age Golden Boy, uh, new excavations at Hadrian's Wall and the Harpole Treasure. 
And of course, we'll be announcing the winners of the 15th Annual Current Archaeology Awards. You can book tickets for the conference on archaeology.co.uk forward slash live. Campbell, many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good luck with the exhibition preparations. Thank you. That was Dr. Campbell Price talking to Sarah there. Um, He sounded very excited, didn't he? There must be a lot of pressure Mm. on his shoulders. Oh, a huge amount. And not just putting on a new exhibition with all the problems of working with delicate ancient materials, but it's also part of the reopening of the whole museum. And that's after a major refurbishment. So very exciting time for Campbell and for the museum. Mm. Hopefully it goes well. Um, That's all for this week. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks very much. It's been nice to talk to you. Thank you. Um, And thank you for listening as well.